From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihera Zazan. Iraqi-American pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha has played a critical role in exposing the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, which affected thousands of adults and children after dangerous cost-cutting measures led to widespread lead poisoning. And I am a first-generation immigrant. I, I wasn't supposed to be in this country. We came to this country when I was about four years old. I was born in the UK. My father was getting his PhD at the University of Sheffield. And it was the late 1970s. And the plan was to go back home. And home was Baghdad. Um, that's where all of our family was. But in the late 1970s is when Saddam Hussein was rising in power. Mm-hmm. And his brutality and his tyranny and his dictatorship were becoming increasingly clear. And my parents could not go back home with two small children. This week, we speak with Dr. Atisha about her new book, What the Eyes Don't See, Story of Crisis, Resistance, and Hope in an American City, which centers on her own account of the crisis through both scientific and activist lenses. Later in the show, Italian director Marco Prosepio will tell us about the making of his documentary film, The Man Who Stole Banksy, which chronicles the saga of one of the street artist Banksy's murals in the Palestinian city of Bethlehem, and how it ended up on the Western world's commercial art market. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. On April 25, 2014, Flint Mayor pressed a button at the Flint Water Treatment Plant to shut off the Detroit water supply. From that moment on, Flint residents started getting their drinking water from the cheaper Flint River instead, which was contaminated with high levels of lead. The residents complained about the color and smell of the water coming out of their faucets, but the city and state officials kept assuring them that everything was fine. Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha played a major role in uncovering elevated lead blood levels in Flint children. Her research revealed that the percentage of children with elevated lead levels increased significantly after the water switch. Her new book, What the Eyes Don't See, Story of Crisis, Resistance and Hope, in an American city is the story of the water crisis in Flint, the many factors that led to the poisoning of tens of thousands of people in an American city, as well as her efforts to hold the state accountable. Dr. Mona Atisha is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and Director of the Pediatric Residency Program at Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan. So this book, What the Eyes Don't See, is very much a story about the Flint water crisis, but it's also very much a memoir because to learn about my role in this crisis, you have to learn about me. And I am a first-generation immigrant. I I wasn't supposed to be in this country. We came to this country when I was about four years old. Um, I was born in the UK. My father was getting his PhD at the University of Sheffield. And it was the late 1970s. And the plan was to go back home. And home was Baghdad. 
Um, That's where all of our family was. But in the late 1970s is when Saddam Hussein was rising in power Mm -hmm. and his brutality and his tyranny and his dictatorship were becoming increasingly clear. And my parents could not go back home with two small children. They were pacifists. They were leftists. They were dissidents. They were scientists. So we, we immigrated to the U.S., where really it was the beginning of the Iraqi diaspora. And we settled in Michigan, where there is the largest population of Arab Americans outside of the Middle East is in Michigan. Actually, the most common second language in Michigan is Arabic. And that's where we spent the last you know, 30, 40 years. That lens of an immigrant, of very acutely knowing what injustice is, of being every day grateful to be in this country, to be here because of the freedom, the opportunity, the democracy, for the American dream that was very much realized for me and my family. It is with that lens that I do my work and that I ended up in Flint as a pediatrician. Your father never lost his connection with Iraq. He published political newsletters. He even mailed these newsletters to politicians in the United States. Whenever I picture my dad at the time, I picture him in a small office smoking cigarette after cigarette with a shortwave radio, the crackle of that shortwave radio, trying to find any news about what was going back home and trying to use his voice to, to tell people about Saddam Hussein's brutality. At that time, he was America's best friend, and he was trying to share information about what he was doing. And he never blinded me as a child to the atrocities back home. The first time I actually saw a picture of a dead baby was when he shared reports of the massacre at Halebja. So Halebja was a city in, in northern Iraq and Kurdistan that was poisoned by the regime of Saddam Hussein. Over 5,000 people were killed. It's still to this day the single greatest chemical weapons attack. And he showed me a picture of this beautiful baby wrapped in pink, covered by her father who was trying to protect her, murdered on the street, literally poisoned by their own government. So we were never shielded from the atrocities. We were never shielded from the knowledge of what evil people in power could do to vulnerable populations. And you say you had nightmares. I had nightmares. And I continue to have nightmares. Anybody would after seeing those images. You say nightmares of Halabje persisted throughout my childhood. The trauma of the image I saw still searing and strong. But eventually, this atrocity was dwarfed by our two wars in Iraq and the sanctions in between. So as you were growing up, because of how political your family was, how did you connect personally and politically to what was happening in Iraq? Yeah, so I was trying to be an American kid. You know, I was I was playing soccer. We were going on family trips. Mm. But those were abruptly shaken by news from back home. Um, you know, uncles who'd gone missing who were serving in Iraq, Iran, Iraq war or families under air raids. Um, or another war that had just started. It was that ongoing sense of injustice that kind of kept me grounded and really kept me focused and involved in other fights for justice. I couldn't go back to Iraq and and fight there or, or do work there, but I could be involved in my own community. So as a young kid in high school, I got involved in environmental activism. Yeah. Um, there was an incinerator by my house, which we eventually got shut down. So I increasingly got involved in more more causes and more efforts to bring justice to my current home. Your father is a very curious man, and he started looking back at the families 
history, he found some very important information. I mean, and I think this is important to talk about right now, especially given how immigrants and particularly people from the Middle East are portrayed in this country, in the media and in the public sphere. Your distant cousin, Paul Shekwana, was one of the first public health scientists from the Middle East, Ottoman era, from present Iraq. He came to the U.S. in 1904. He was a bacteriologist, and he was hired by Iowa City, where a deadly outbreak of typhoid fever had struck. My father, by profession, is an engineer, but he's an ultimate researcher. And it has been one of his hobbies to, to dig and dig and dig and really share with all of us what he's learned. And we've uncovered incredible stories. So my distant cousin is Dr. Paul Shaquana, who came to the U.S. from the Middle East to protect the public health of folks in the Midwest. So he came to Iowa City, and his, his comings and goings are all really cataloged in, in local newspaper reports where he battled typhoid fever, milk pasteurization, hand washing. He even worked on water quality issues. And then he suffered a very untimely and mysterious death. How old was he when he died? I think about 33. He yes. was trying to go back to England yes, at absolutely. that time. Yep. He was just a fascinating figure. You write that Shekwana was brought in to work with the Iowa Board of Health Bacteriology Lab. An entire floor of the new Iowa City Medical Building was given over to his lab team. Incredible. It's amazing. Unprecedented that he had so many resources and he had such expertise to help um, the, the, his new community that he was serving. How much people in the health science world know about him? I don't think anybody knows about him. I think our family does. After what we learned, we set up a scholarship in his name mm -hmm. to help folks who are pursuing careers in medicine and, and college graduates uh, pursue those careers. But uh, it's been one of my father's quests and now mine to really share this information that, hey, we had some really amazing early pioneers from the Middle East who were doing good in this country. Are there any records of his writings, of his research in scientific journals? Yeah, or? there's. Um, it's mentioned in my book, but there's an excerpt that is in JAMA, the Journal of American mm -hmm. Medical Association, that specifically talks about his emphasis on hand washing. And for somebody who works in a hospital every day, that is still, to this day, something we are battling trying to improve hand washing rates. Because it really does improve health. Absolutely. I think there the was book. a recent study that if people wash their hands more, we would save one million lives a hmm. year. Uh, thanks to your father, who started digging into your family's history, on your mom's side, you found out about your great uncle Nuri Rafael Kotani, yeah. who was a revolutionary in the 1930s. Yeah, so Nuri spent almost half his life imprisoned or on the run. And I loved as a child hearing about Nuri, but until recently, we've, we've learned a lot more. Um, we actually got his entire file from his service in the Spanish Civil War. So in the 1930s, he left Iraq and traveled from Baghdad to Spain with a friend of his, an Iraqi Jew, and they were the only two Iraqis that fought in the Spanish Civil War, the quintessential fight for freedom against fascists. Um, they were part of the International Brigade, um, and they fought in one of the early battles of, of World War II. Um, so I think about Nuri often, and I think about how he fought a borderless cause, how he was fighting for freedom, not, not for country, not for race, not for religion, but, but fighting for freedom and justice anywhere. And I think this is such an important point um, you make in your book. You say 
people like Nuri and Dr. Shakwana, they shaped who you are and they instilled this sense of justice Absolutely. in you. You write, what I love most about his story is Nuri's bravery, persistent and unfailing loyalty to a borderless progressive cause. This is something that we desperately need today. Yes. He fought for something bigger than a country or a religion, a tribe, or an ethnic group. He fought for all people, for humanity, with a hope that there was another way to live. As a young woman, when I heard the stories that Haji, your grandfather, told about Nuri, I couldn't help but imagine my great uncle fighting with the Spanish Republicans. And I thought of him hanging with Ernest Hemingway, George Orwell, Langston Hughes, and other idealists from far and wide who came together for this quaint, essentially romantic, progressive fight of the 20th century. And that can't be more resonating than today. This is really what you and other activists were able to create in Flint. Yeah, but that's why I wrote this book, to share that others all over can do the same. It is about ordinary people, no matter who you are, a mom, an activist, a teacher, a doctor, who can come together and fight for a better tomorrow. We don't have to be complacent. We don't have to keep our eyes closed. We can open them and and work for, for justice and equality. On April 25th, 2014, Flint Mayor Walling pressed a button at the Flint Water Treatment Plant to shut off the valve to close the Detroit water supply. When the pipes opened to the Flint water, he toasted by drinking a glass of water, declaring, all is well. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Give us a bit of a background. Why was the water switched specifically for Flint residents and not other places in Michigan? So Flint is a story of what happens when you lose democracy. So Flint was under state-appointed emergency management because the city was almost bankrupt. And the emergency manager's job was austerity, which means to save money. And it was in 2011. 2011. And the deficit was $25 million. Yeah, it was a lot of money. So Flint had been in crisis really for decades because of disinvestment, unemployment, poverty, racism, and really being starved by the state. So because of that, in Michigan, if you are in bad financial straits, the, the states can swoop in and just usurp democracy. At one point in Michigan in 2013, half of African-Americans in our state were under emergency management compared to 2%. Detroit was also Detroit under. was also, yep, near bankruptcy and under emergency management. So uh, the goal was to save money. It was to save dollars and save dollars and save dollars. So the emergency manager decided that the water that we had been getting from Great Lakes, and as a reminder to the listeners, Michigan, Flint, is literally in the middle of the largest source of fresh water in the world. 20% of the fresh water in the world is around Michigan. But it was too expensive for this poor, predominantly minority city to continue to get Great Lakes water. So the water was switched to the Flint River without proper treatment. It was not treated with the proper chemicals to prevent corrosion. And because of that, this corrosive water went through an aging distribution system that had a lot of lead in the plumbing. And that lead came out of the plumbing mm. into the water and into the bodies of our children. You write, people knew the Flint River had been a toxic industrial dump site for decades. Yeah. Even if in recent years the river water did not look quite as brown or as thick and flammable, it was said to have twice caught fire 
as it had before the 1972 Clean Water Act. When they switched from mm-hmm. Lake Huron to Flint River, did anybody raise any questions? Yeah, Who was people, in charge? People, the emergency manager was in charge. The state was in charge. So people were raising red flags. Uh, Flint residents who knew the history of that river were like, are you kidding me? Like, how are you switching to this river uh, that has a history of industrial pollution? But it, it wasn't the river's fault. It's because it wasn't treated properly. The river water may have been okay, not ideal, but it wasn't treated properly. Um, and the folks who were in charge of treating it properly were the ones that were really most culpable here. You're supposed to add the corrosion control. You're supposed to do it before before a switch happens. You are a pediatrician, and you started working at Hurley Hospital in 2011, Mm -hmm. before the water crisis, before 2014. What was the situation? What was the living condition for kids like in Flint? You mentioned in your book that there was also a lead paint problem Mm -hmm. in Flint Mm -hmm. that was kind of monitored but was not taken care of. So the children in Flint had been suffering from every obstacle to their development even before this water crisis. Like I said earlier, Flint had been in crisis for decades. And in pediatrics, we think of these as toxic stresses. So our kids were suffering from the toxicity of poverty, of violence, of lack of nutrition, of unsafe places to play, of poor schools, of crumbling neighborhoods. All of these things impact children's development and their entire life course trajectory. Our children in Flint already had higher levels of lead, just like most inner city children. So lead is a form of environmental injustice, also Mm. known as environmental racism. So our Flint kids already had higher levels, just like kids in Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia also children who are already burdened with every other kind of toxicity that threatens their development. And that's why I work in Flint. That's why I have chosen to dedicate my career and work there because it's a place that needs the interventions and needs the advocacy and needs a public health approach to the care of our patients. After April 25th, when the water was switched, how soon after people started complaining about the color the smell and the quality of water. The book goes through this kind of rapid retelling of of what happened during this period. And it was really right away. So right away, the people of Flint were heroic. And they said, hey, there's something wrong with my water. It's brownish. It's greenish. It tastes weird. It looks funny. It smells funny. We had bacteria issues in the water. And then that was cleared. Then they added a lot of chlorine to kill the bacteria. And it felt like people were drinking a swimming pool. And that irritated people's skin and eyes. We had so many problems with this water. But the entire time, the state was saying everything was okay. And you had a trust in the government, in local and state authorities, and you thought that, well, they switched the water, they say everything is fine, so everything should be fine. And even a year after the switch, you write about sitting at your desk and reading the newspaper and reading another article about water problems in Flint, but you did not uh, raise the alarm to say maybe there is something wrong here. You found out about this by accident, and you write about when parents came to you, and specifically a couple of instances, you told them, even one of your residents, Mm -hmm. you told them, you know, just keep drinking the water. It's fine. Don't spend your money on bottled water. 
Just keep drinking it. It's safe. I'm in American soil. This is not a developing country. This is not 19th century London with cholera epidemics. This is America. This is the 21st century. There's rules. There's regulations. In my head, I imagine these people with white coats testing the water whose main job is to make sure that the delivery of water is safe. I never expected that it would be disparate that people who are privileged would have access to something that people who are not privileged. So talk about that meeting, that that exchange you had with your patient. Yeah. So uh, right before I found out that there was lead in the water, um, I was in clinic. And I would I would had many interactions with patients. Um, and there's one that's highlighted in the book um, where a young mom brings in her baby, beautiful baby, for her routine checkup. And mom is just, she wants to stop breastfeeding. And of course, every pediatrician encourages moms to continue breastfeeding. Um, But she's like, you know, she's like, I'm going to switch to formula. And the way you make formula is you mix tap water with powder. And the mom um, knew in her gut, she knew that there was something wrong with the water. And she asked, is the water okay for me to mix this formula for my baby? And I said, yes, it's okay. How can it not be okay? How can the water that comes out of our tap not be okay. And I reassured her that she can use it for her baby's formula. And you told her they say it is fine to drink. Yep. Yep. Because the state was giving us every reassurance possible. Now, lead is a neurotoxin and it disrupts brain development. From 2014 to 2015, did you notice anything unusual? A lot of kids that you were treating, they were on Medicaid. And It was not mandatory, but they did annual blood tests. Mm -hmm. Did you notice anything? No. So, and that's the whole point of the title of the book, What the Eyes Don't See. So very literally, we don't see lead in water, but we don't see lead exposure. It's known as a silent pediatric epidemic. We don't pick it up. There are no symptoms of lead exposure. People don't come in with headaches or stomach aches or or learning problems right away. They're subclinical symptoms. Um, We see them years, if not decades later, and it's also almost impossible to prove causation later on. So our eyes do not see it. And that is why we often screen children for for lead exposure. But that's also backwards because when we screen a child and we detect lead in them, we're just using them as environmental markers of environmental poisoning. Uh, So we need to be screening our environments more. So it could be that at a specific time when you test them, you might not notice the elevated levels of lead in their blood. But then a year later, they might show up. So in a way, the authorities, the health department, they're using these kids to monitor the, the environment uh, the that they're growing up in. Yeah, and lead in blood has a very short detection window. It has something mm. called a half-life of 28 days, and then it dissipates. So depending on when you test, it, it's, it's just a short window in time. And the testing is done at the ages of when children are most at risk for household lead exposure, like paint and dust, not when children are most at risk for lead water. All the blood data is an underestimation of exposure. But even at that, not every kid is tested. You no. say about 40% of the kids right. are tested? Not every kids are not every kid tested. Um, we used to have a universal testing, but now it's only for high-risk populations like kids on Medicaid because that's a proxy for poverty. It's interesting how nation states regulate poverty 
through testing without taking care of the fundamental issues that creates poverty, like removing lead paint. Exactly. Instead, they are just monitoring it. Um, yeah. That's an incredible point. And we in the United States have one of the highest child poverty rates of ever, any of any developed country. We are literally at war with our children, uh, which is so selfish and then self-defeating, um, not only with poverty rates, but drinking water safety, uh, gun violence, uh, children's health insurance. So much of what we do in this nation does not value and protect our children and does not follow the best science. In your book, you write about the evening that you found out by accident that there was a problem and you were encouraged by your friend who was a former EPA official in Washington, D.C. to look into the matter and she helped you throughout your struggle. Just take us to that evening, what happened and then what did you do afterwards? Yeah, so it was a last minute barbecue at my house. Texting earlier the day, are you free? Come over, are you free? And my two high school girlfriends came over and one of them, Elin, happens to be a water expert who worked at the EPA in Washington, D.C. when Washington, D.C. had a very similar lead and water crisis about a decade ago. And she is the one that told me that Flint wasn't treating its water properly and that there was going to be lead in the water. And not until that point had I ever heard the word lead. And not until that point did I even know that there was lead in plumbing. I had no idea that we even used lead in plumbing until that point. And I was blinded. And I was a pediatrician with an environmental health background, a public health background, who had cared for dozens of children with lead exposure. And I never knew that there was lead in plumbing. Another crucial piece of information that helped you in seriously investigating lead levels in Flint was what Professor Mark Edwards and his Virginia Tech research team found out around the same time. He published a report with the headline, Flint has a very serious lead in water problem. The report showed the numbers were pretty dramatic. After you saw his report, you were sure that this problem is deep and it has to be looked into. Yeah, this book chronicles the friendship and collaboration with, with Mark Edwards, who is this world expert in, in lead and water and on corrosion. And I never thought that anybody would care as much about children as a pediatrician does. And here is a, a water expert, environmental engineer, who probably cared about children more than mm. I do. And he took a second mortgage on his house. Absolutely. To look into, to research the water contamination crisis in Washington, D.C. This guy is driven by science and driven by truth and driven by protecting children. And um, he was using citizen science. He worked hand in hand with the people of Flint to transparently show that there was lead in Flint's water, all over Flint's water. And when he shared that data, it should have stopped. It never should have gotten to the point of me needing to prove that children had lead in their blood. It should have stopped when we had evidence of lead in, in the water. When did he publish his report? This was in the summer of 2015. Mm, this is around the same time. That right, yeah, you... right before um, I got involved. And then you're also right about an APA regional employer, Miguel de Toral, mm -hmm. who was notified by an mm -hmm. amazing mom in mm -hmm. Flint telling him, come and look at my water. There is something wrong here. And Del Toro wrote a report in which he described water testing in the home of Leanne Walter, 
a 37-year-old mother of four. Just a few months after the water source switched in 2014, Walter noticed that her three-year-old twins, Gavin and Garrett, broke out in red bumps after they were given a bath. Gavin had immune deficiencies and was especially prone to the problem. If he soaked in the bathtub for a long time, a scarily rash would form across his chest at the waterline. What happened to his report? His report actually went public. It was leaked. An amazing investigative journalist, Kirk Ayette, who was working for the ACLU, got a hold of that report from the mom, from Leanne Walters, and he published it in July of 2015. People knew about that report in July of 2015. You would have thought that the crisis may have ended then, but nothing happened. So what happened to Miguel? Miguel still works for the EPA. He tried to bravely and defiantly continue his work, but he was silenced by the EPA. He offered to use his own money to prove that there was lead levels in Flint and elevated lead levels all over, but they wouldn't let him do it. So EPA ignored his report or... They discredited his report. Both. Both the EPA and the state discredited him. The state called him a rogue employee. Um, The EPA administrator said that he overstepped. Subsequently, the EPA inspector general looked into this and said that they should have done more. They should have acted seven months sooner when they first knew about the lead and water issues in Flint. There are so many layers of bureaucracy. The regional EPA, the Department of Health, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, MDEQ, and several others. Which agency was at the top of the pyramid to make sure water quality does not suffer as the result of the switch? Right. So there's been a lot of reports that have tried to ask that exact same question. And the blame, the ultimate blame and the culpability lies with the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, specifically their Office of Drinking Water. Those are the folks that knew how water should have been treated. Those were the folks in charge. And they were even told what they needed to do, but they didn't do it. And that's where most of the charges um, have been laid against are the the folks who worked in that department. Um, Many criminal charges, including homicide charges. So we talked a lot about lead in water, but we also had one of the largest outbreaks of Legionnaires disease. Ten people died. Uh, Over 10, I think about 12 people. Mm. There was also an uptick of just pneumonia mortality. Um, So there's been people who've been charged with negligent homicide. You basically complimented Professor West's work. He said water is polluted, and you said, let's look at the impact and see where we can find signs of lead poisoning. So you started collecting blood samples and blood data. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew I needed that proof of impact. That's what was missing in Washington, D.C. when they had a similar lead and water crisis. They didn't have the impact it had on children, and it lasted longer, and there was no accountability. Children's lead levels are part of routine screening. So we just went back in time and looked at the screening levels of children's lead in their blood and noticed that after the water switch, there was this increase in the percentage of children with elevated lead levels. And that was a massive underestimation because not many kids were screened nor at the right ages, but it was contrary to everything that was happening in the nation, in the state, and in our city where the lead levels had been coming down. And here was lead levels going up, and it directly correlated geographically with the same areas where the water lead levels were the highest. 
We can never prove causation, but there was a really strong correlation. In the areas where the water lead levels were the highest, we saw the even greatest increases in children's blood levels. And we also noticed that there was nothing happening outside of the city. There was no change in blood lead levels in children who did not get this drinking water. So this was what the research was. And then we kind of committed something called academic disobedience. We shared this research before it went through the peer review process, which is what you have to do in academia and medicine. But that takes a long time. And my kids in Flint did not have another day. So we shared this research at a press conference, which is very atypical in medicine. But we had to alert our children and the public to take precautions. And after you presented your result, you immediately came under attack. So my science was attacked, my credibility was attacked. And at one point, I started to believe them. I, you know, I felt that maybe I did mess up, maybe this was wrong, maybe my science was wrong. But I knew my science was right. And my science, my statistics, my evidence, my data were numbers, but every single one of those numbers was a kid. It was a child, a child that I literally have taken an oath to protect. And it's those kids that got me back in this fight because my oath is to protect them and to protect their potential. And what was happening in our water was threatening the potential of all of our children. And in many of the meetings that you attended when you were presenting your initial resorts to the mayor and city officials, and then when you had your press conference, you always made sure that the community was represented. You took these parents with you. Mm -hmm. What was their reaction? What did they want you to do on their behalf? So the the parents are the real heroes in the story. Um, You know, in Pediatrics 101, like in the beginning of pediatric training, we always learned that moms are always right. Parents are always right. Listen to the parents. If they think something's wrong, something is wrong. If they're worried about their kids, there's, there's a reason that they're worried. I was just listening to the parents. You know, they knew something was wrong, and we gave them the science that shared exactly what was wrong with the water. You said, I worried that results weren't pre-reviewed, as you said. I worried that I was over my head. I was worried, most of all, that I was doing exactly what the state accused me of, creating a problem where none existed and adding anxiety to the already stressed lives of my patients and our city. What made you fight back? Yeah, so what made me fight back was the kids, was, was recognizing that it is my job to be an advocate. It is my job as a pediatrician to use my voice to protect my children. And that's what got me back in the fight. And I wasn't alone. Um, we talked, and, and you mentioned this village of people that were part of this effort, moms and activists and pastors and journalists and water scientists. The, a lesson of the story that I hope folks go away with is that It's all about team. It's all about building a network, building a village. So often we think that we fight these fights alone, but there's other people out there who may not look like us or vote like us or act like us or come from the same place as us that that actually care about the same things that we care about. And I just want you to read a passage from the epilogue, Haji and the Birds. One day, after feeding the birds, Haji climbed a ladder to pick dates from a palm tree. And reaching for a branch slightly too high, he fell off and broke his leg. He called out for help, called and called, but nobody came. A small bird flew down and tugged at the hem of his white dishdasha. The bird told Haji that he would take him to the doctor, but Haji laughed at the small bird, wondering how such a tiny bird could carry him. Soon another bird came and took the edge of his sleeve. 
Another bird came, and another, until hundreds of birds surrounded him. They each held a small piece of his dishdasha, and even his hair and his toes, and together the birds were able to lift him and fly him through the air. They flew over the palm trees, the majestic meandering tigress, the statues of the ancient poets and caliphs, and the impossibly blue minarets and cramped alleys of old Baghdad. It was a magic carpet of birds, and they flew him all the way to the Baghdad hospital, where a very kind doctor took care of his leg. In a few weeks after his care, Haji was much better and went out into his garden to see the birds again. Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and Director of the Pediatric Residency Program at Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan. She's the author of the new book, What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. first time I did graffiti, we decided to make a piece to protest the visit of Obama. So we made a French kiss between Abu Mazen and Obama, and we covered the entire city. Like, we had the stencil, and every, like, 10 meters, we sprayed. We were, why don't we do this all the time, you know? First time I know that it's illegal to make graffiti on the said, wow, like uh, here, when we do something, all the neighbors want you to make uh, more. Like, uh, so you do it and escape. Huh? Not because it's illegal, you escape because you can't do 100, you know? Started during the first intifada. There was like a political movement and people need to contact with the locals, you know, to have like one voice. During the first intifada, Palestinians doesn't have any control over media. So how they distribute their political ideas was throughout the world. You <laughs> just come and make this, the, the message and uh, disappear. Our way of 
Painting, we are not professional. We use like simple material, but medium is message for us. If the soldier will check your house and they find spray, this is a crime. They could put you in the jail. Palestinians have long utilized subversive street art for political activism. But in 2007, an enigmatic British street artist, Banksy, decided to join in the fun. His visit to Palestine garnered worldwide attention, just as local activists and artists had been doing for decades. Banksy spray-painted politically charged artworks on walls and buildings in Bethlehem. One specific piece, depicting an Israeli soldier checking a donkey's papers, a mural considered by some as offensive to Palestinians, is the subject of the Italian documentarian Marco Proserpio's new film, The Man Who Stole Banksy. The film tells a two-pronged tale. One, the story of Palestinian taxi driver and bodybuilder Walid the Beast, who decided to excise a portion of cement wall featuring a Banksy mural and sell it on eBay. And two, how occupied Palestine, public street art, and private profit combine to pose a number of profound questions about the nature of art production and colonialism. Palestine has uh, become, over the years and decades, one of the world's central progressive causes, regardless of the amount of money and power arrayed against it. The likes of Carlos Santana, Roger Waters, Iggy Pop, who narrates this uh, very sympathetic film to the Palestinian cause, uh, these people no longer shy away from lending their support, and they're ignoring the Zionists' uh, economic stranglehold on the arts and media in countries like the U.S., the U.K., and France. For decades, Israel's sympathizers have had this almost monopoly on soft power and propaganda. Hollywood, uh, the fine arts, musicians, basically all against Palestine. This quasi-monopoly is now effectively dead, uh, with increasing numbers of very mainstream artists and intellectuals more and more overtly siding with Palestine. This apartheid wall, as we call it, and this mural graffiti phenomenon that has become part of this wall, this movement, is it something that is uh, even more radical? What's interesting about your film is that it's not just about Palestine. It's about colonialism in Palestine, but it's also about how art fits within that picture. The question is, this movement that we are seeing in favor of Palestine, all these artists coming to Palestine to draw and make a statement on that wall. Is that something that is catching on in places like Italy? Do you see a, a movement, an increasing uh, movement of solidarity towards Palestine, or is that just an exception? I can tell you that the first time I went there, I already saw many documentaries about Palestine and about their uh, brutal situation, their sufferance. And in the very moment I went, I saw this big wall and uh, I went in the, the checkpoint to enter in Bethlehem, I was thinking that uh, I did want to picture Palestine on a different angle and picture Palestinians uh, not as uh, victims but as uh, human beings. When I met Walid the Beast, the Palestinian taxi driver that is the main character of the documentary, I just thought that it was a brilliant case, a brilliant story to tell, because uh, 
the act of removing a piece of art from the wall is at least controversial in our Western world. So telling a story about Palestine, about that context, starting from a different sort from a controversial action, something that in our world is considered bad in a way, was something very interesting to picture the, the country and their situation, their brutal situation on a, on a slightly different angle. Yeah, before you come back to Walid and the way Palestinians are reacting to the Banksy murals, I'd rather call them murals than, than graffiti, but it's the same. The apartheid wall has become a magnet for artists uh, from the, the whole world, and in a sense, the world's largest blank canvas. How are the Israelis taking this uh, phenomenon, this subversion? I don't think Israel cares about people painting on the, on the wall because they normally do on the Palestinian side. So if you are a European artist and you go to Palestine to paint on the wall, no soldier will, will, uh, will stop you, I think. But in your film we learned that Israelis do arrest Palestinians just for the crime of owning a can of spray paint. That's sometimes yeah, exactly. enough, right? No, no, no. For Palestinians it's completely different. If you are a, a European artist, you can go there and paint on the wall. If you are a Palestinian, it's different because you, on the fact that they were like checked for doing graffiti in Palestine, yes, it happened mainly during the first Intifada. I think they used graffiti as a means of communication between them. I mean, the Palestinians. It was a practice that had always been criticized, let's say, by the Israelis. They didn't want them to communicate between them on the walls. You know, you say the Israelis are ignoring it, but Israel has always tried to clamp down on, on freedom of speech when it comes to the Palestinian issue. Yes. So the Palestinians, uh, according to your film, to your documentary, they seem to love the attention this graffiti art is bringing to their cause. It means that they exist, and that whatever the occupiers may be doing, the Palestinians cannot be ignored. Yet there is also some opposition within the Palestinians, uh, some opposition to this type of art. From viewing the film, uh, they seem to have a variety of, of reactions to, to this type of, uh, to the Banksy and other types of uh, art on the wall. There's those who hate it, like Walid, we'll come back to Walid, the taxi driver, we'll examine why he is not happy about it. Then those who love it, like the councilwoman that you interviewed, the Palestinian councilwoman, who, who's very, very happy about it. She thinks that the more uh, there is of this, the more Palestinians exist in the eyes of the world. And then there's those who profit by it, as you've shown in your documentary, either on a retail basis, uh, like that uh, businessman who has the Banksy store, or wholesale, exporting the mural to the world to try to make a quick and big profit. So start telling us by why Walid, the taxi driver, your main character, uh, seems to hate the, the mural. Why is it? One of the things that uh, was very interesting to me at the beginning, because um, when I went to Palestine for the first time, I saw that these uh, Banksy paintings were like liked from most of the population, but there are people, mainly older people, that didn't understand the meaning of what Banksy painted there, for example. So it's such a, a brutal situation there that if, if something happens in Palestine, it's such a particular place, such a brutal situation that normally it divides the people. Most of the people there loved what Banksy did there, and the Banksy action there are bringing still nowadays 
tourism to Bethlehem. I mean, people were, is not just going to the church of the, of the nativity, is visiting other areas of Bethlehem where there are paintings by Banksy, and so they, they, they can see the, the situation there. So, on one side, it's, it's very important what he did. On the other side, for example, in the life of Walid the Beast, this painting on a wall doesn't change anything in his life, in his opinion, obviously. It's, uh, it's kind of uh, normal to me to, to hear people that love all the things Banksy is doing there, but at the same time, also with the hotel, when I went to the opening of the hotel, there were people that were not happy about it. What I really think is that all these paintings on the wall of Bethlehem, on the wall of Palestine that Banksy did, are not referred to Palestinians. The message on the wall is for the, the Western society, let's say. And it's there, the context, the location is Palestine, but Banksy is not talking to Palestinians. Banksy is talking to, to all of the world. There are different people with different opinions, but I, I really think that what Banksy did there in the last 10 years is a, is a great action and uh, put this place on a, on a spotlight and um, also talk to the younger generation about that follow street art that in the meantime has become a mainstream, uh, mainstream topic, let's say. It's not just something for, the, for young kids painting illegally on the streets nowadays. So the young people can uh, talk and follow a bigger issue Thanks to these uh, amazing artists. Yes, I w and I'm going to come back to this uh, important idea in your film. But what I read about Walid's reaction, and I think you're right in pointing out that this is art by Westerners for Westerners, or certainly I not just it. for Palestinians. That may be something that grates on him. But the other thing that I got from his remarks was that this seems to him like another yet another foreign intervention that never asks for Palestinians' opinion. They just came and it happened. And in that way, it may feel a little bit like colonialism, that foreigners are coming and doing their thing. And it takes agency away from the Palestinians, I think, from his point of view. But to come back to the idea of this subversion of public art and how it belongs in, in a context like this. One of the people you interviewed in the film says, this is art done in secret and for the public. And as such, as such, it shouldn't be privatized. It shouldn't be taken away, stolen, and so, sold for high profits, even if it's possible to do so. Uh, graffiti in most places is frowned upon and made illegal. That's a, and there's a class dimension to this struggle with property owners, uh, whether here in San Francisco or Los Angeles or, or anywhere in the world, property owners are usually against graffiti. And the perpetrators who, who do the graffiti typically are very often impoverished young people who are rebelling against the sanctity of, no, of the notion of private property. So one central question in this film, the man who stole Bansky, is can art, artwork, the act of making art, can that avoid becoming a commodity? Can the art product escape becoming a commodity? Or can art ever be art for art's sake or even for the sake of community empowerment and liberation? Everything nowadays seems to have a price. So we have to start from that. 
a very famous artist that which works millions of dollars, thousands of dollars, an artwork in the public space, probably there will be there will be some problems in our society. And I'm not surprised about this. At the same time I do think that these drawings should be should be left where they are. Obviously the case study, let's say, I mean the Walid the Beast story, I I'm telling you in the documentary, it's a very radical case study in this discussion because uh, in Walid the Beast life Banksy's art is not that important. I mean art is not that important. It came from a, from somewhere where Art is not a priority, so it used to be another choice. In the film, there are many, many characters uh, that uh, do the same very radical action of removing something from the public space to own that piece, and uh, there are many characters doing the same, same very radical action, and uh, each one of them, each one of these actions of this character has a different meaning. I mean, it's no white or black. There is no good way or bad way to remove art from the street. There are a million angles and you can see the situation. I probably think that art should be should stay where the artist choose, but at the same time, nowadays where uh, street art has become mainstream, as I told you before, it's not just a thing that for uh, young kids painting illegally the street, we are talking about uh, a big market. What I found especially unique and interesting about your film is that, in my opinion, it puts two parallel phenomena together. It brings two main ideas. One is the general idea of colonialism, and the other one is the question of the worth of artwork. Just as a capitalist colonialist society might see a waste in a land where the natives are not making top, very often colonialists like France, for example, in Algeria, where I come from originally, or Israel and Palestine, they will often argue that one of the big problems with the natives is that they didn't take maximum advantage of their natural resources, and therefore there was a waste, their wasted profit, a wasted prosperity. That's one of their main arguments for colonizing a country, that we're better. We can really make use of these natural resources. And I see the same kind of logic around this Banksy mural that was stolen and attempted to, to be sold, that there's wasted profit there. If you just leave it there for the public, when it could make a lot of money, it's wasted profit. So it's the same logic. And it's interesting that in your case, in the case of this film, this story, it's both at the same time, colonialism and capitalism coming together and saying, no, we cannot allow something to be there for the sake of the people or for the sake of beauty, but it has to be privatized and monetized. I normally do not agree with the removing art from the street, as I told you, but at the same time, if you, if you think it is a very specific uh, case of the donkey with the soldier, it should be left where uh, Banksy decided to paint in this uh, main road of Bethlehem where everybody could, could see it. And it would be, for me, the perfect place for people to see it. Otherwise, even if they cut it down and send it all over the world, for example, when you saw it, when I saw in a sort of 
shopping center, very, very sad shopping center in London, the, the removed wall, the darkest social wall, I saw it displayed in museums or in this sad shopping center. I really thought that uh, it was totally out of context, but at the same time that uh, at the end of the day, the message that is, that is on, the, on that wall was traveling, was, was still traveling. I mean, people seeing that wall could talk about uh, what that drawing means for banks, yes, for people, I mean, for Palestinians, for example. But at the same time, this drawing traveling was still... Uh, I, didn't, I didn't agree with it, with, the, with this uh, action of removing the wall, but at the same time, I thought that it was a thing that uh, could um, let this message travel all around the world. Except it might end up in one person's house and nobody else will see it, except their exactly. friends. <laughs> This last solution of uh, this last, uh, I mean, finale, let's say, of this wall being uh, in a building in London or in a in an house of a pri- of a private uh, collector is is for me unacceptable. Marco Proserpio is a documentary filmmaker and director. The man who stole Banksy. It will premiere on Saturday, July 21st at 8.45 p.m. at the Castor Theatre as part of this year's San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. To learn more about this year's festival, please check jfi.org for scheduling and tickets. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.